Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, September 1st, 2021. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary Magazine. Please join us at www.commentary.org for articles, uh, blog posts, everything that you could possibly want to know about everything dating back to 1945. Few free reads. We ask you to subscribe. It's also a great way to support the podcast. With me, as always, Executive Editor Abe Rewald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Senior writer Christine Rosen. Hi, Christine. Hi, John. And associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Uh, so Joe Biden made his uh, speech about the uh, end of the war in Afghanistan or the putative end of the war in Afghanistan uh, at the uh, ignominious time of around 3.30 on a Tuesday afternoon, because that's how you com- uh, you know commemorate the conclusion of uh, 20 years of conflict is to um, say you're going to speak at 1.30, eventually speak at 3.30, and kind of uh, dodder your way out at uh, about 3.47, uh, having given an uncommonly defensive, uh, querulous, uh, self-justifying, self-dramatizing, and and quite in, and in, in many ways conceptually horrifying speech. So why don't we uh, why don't we tease apart these uh, strains? Uh, he began the speech by talking about how magnificent the uh, extraction of Americans and uh, and uh, people that uh, helped America with the war effort from Afghanistan has been since the fall of of, of Kabul, uh, and uh, and basically uh, you know took effectively took credit for the magnificence of this uh, operation. Um, and indeed, it does seem to have been logistically quite a remarkable achievement to have airlifted out 100,000 plus people in 11 or 12 or 13 days or however long it was. Um, never uh, addressing the fact that we only needed to airlift 100,000 people out of Afghanistan uh, based on a series of choices that we made, including closing the Bagram Air Base, uh, that uh, necessitated this um, uh hysterical rush for the exits at the Kabul airport that had to be organized in the way that it was organized. Uh, so it's a little like, um, you know, you, uh, I don't know how to put this. It's like you burn your own house down and then you give yourself credit for how effectively you handled the fire hose in putting out the fire. Okay, but it's a little worse than that because he didn't just take credit for what it, the withdrawal of Americans by our own military. He also took credit and congratulated his administration for the extremely um, uh, uh, courageous efforts of private citizens, which are ongoing, to get people who they had worked with in Afghanistan. We're talking about former Marines, former Army uh, folks who knew that their translators and SIV applicant uh, uh, eligible folks are still trapped there and at great risk. He took credit for those missions too, kind of patting himself on the back, like, aren't we great, America? Look, we're getting these people out. When in fact, all of those missions have been launched because of the incompetence of the Biden administration's withdrawal. And every major NATO and non-NATO ally who executed these operations, only the United States could have done this. Well, no, actually we couldn't have because we didn't. Half the planet was engaged in this and there are still plenty of NATO allies that were left behind just like us. Um, we don't actually know how many American evacuated people are directly responsible. We're, we were directly responsible for. It. We don't have that number because the Pentagon is eliding it. The, Pentagon, the, the, the Biden administration is eliding all all the relevant statistics here, and just you know grouping everybody together in one lump sum and not teasing out who's who, who's American citizens, who's NATO citizens, who's green card holders, who's SIVs and SIV eligibles, and who's not. Yeah, we don't actually know. Look, just, I think the point is. There. They shoveled people onto planes. They flew the planes out. The planes landed at Ramstein and in Qatar and, in, uh, or, you know, wherever they landed, and, or Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, God only knows where. And they got off the plane and the planes flew back and they shoved some more people on the planes. And they, they pulled this off. Somehow moving lots of people in planes, just to make this point, uh, when the Taliban weren't attacking the planes, um, 
I really don't want to be churlish, but, you know, it's an airport, and so there's runways, and so planes take off, and then they land, and planes take off, and then they land. You put people on the planes, and then they fly off, and it's like they are tallying up the number of people who flew out of the airport over 11 or 13 days, and maybe that's a huge number, relatively speaking, compared to what it would have been had this been, uh, you know, not a time when the Taliban took over Kabul and the and the and the government fell, but it's not, you know, Dunkirk. I mean, it really isn't. Dunkirk you was, you know, be. tens you of the, thousands of boats, commercial fishing vessels that forded the English Channel, and they loaded people on three hundred and fifty thousand people onto these boats. That was like a logistical wonderstroke of a of a sort that you know the world has never seen before. Not a plane getting on a runway and taking off with people on it. You should be churlish, because okay. because uh, while this was happening, people were trampled to death. People were clinging to planes and dropping off. Americans were getting notifications saying, come to the airport. Wait, no, don't come to the airport. Okay, come to the airport. No, go home. Turn away right now. It was uh, all sorts of, and uh, needless to say, uh, 13 Marines were killed. Um, this All sorts of horrors were going on simultaneous to, yes, a bunch of planes coming and going with a lot of people on them. Can I? Can I just? Yeah, you know, Joe, Joe Biden's. You know, the theme of his speech is, "If you're not grateful for this cornucopia of successes, blame my predecessor." Well, that's. Um, but he still is trying to say that this is the best case scenario because if he were to evacuate, begin evacuations earlier, it would have caused a panic. It would have precipitated even the earlier collapse of this government, and we may never know. In part because the Biden administration opted to evacuate the military first which is probably mistake number one. Do we think that, the yes, it would have caused a panic, but also the military's there. And yes, it probably also would, have saying been, it would have required caused, a surge, which also, this evacuation also required a surge. No, I mean, and that's the point, which is it would have caused a panic. So guess what? What they did caused a panic. So yeah. saying we didn't do it that way in order not to cause a panic, so we did it this way, and it caused a panic, it's not really a defense. Well, and- it's not... I was just going to add add to that. We now have information from a, from a kind of amazing story from Reuters that the whole time, because the other part of the speech we should talk about is how he was still subtly blaming not just the Afghans um, for what happened and taking no responsibility for his and the America's role in that, but also blaming the people who are still left behind by saying, well, get out, making a promise he absolutely cannot fulfill, which is we'll get people out who want to get out, who choose not to stay. We now know from this Reuters report that while while the Taliban was marching across the country, he called uh, Ghani, the president, um, just before the collapse of Kabul and said, yeah, you know, you're kind of freaking people out by saying the Taliban's going to going to take Kabul. Like, just even if it's true, let's just happy talk this. So this idea that Americans and anyone else left in Afghanistan was getting any other signal except everything's fine here. No need to panic. No need to leave right away. It was belied by this report. So the whole time he's telling these people, oh, it's on you. If you stay, you know, you should have known. They absolutely should not have known because the mixed messaging coming from this administration ensured that they did not. I mean, I hate to put it, th- I mean, again, like, it, I, I honestly don't want to, like, be uh, churlish and ad hominem or whatever, because this is too big an issue and all this. But he said on the 8th of July that the Taliban were not going to take the country over. He said it. And here's the it's thing. Not, yeah. It's not, it's didn't do anything and this way. He said, no, they're not going to fall. And so, therefore, who's making preparations to leave the place you've been living for the last 10 years when the president of the United States is saying it is our estimation that the country's not going to fall. Therefore, you'll have time to, if you figure that one way or the other, you're going to have to leave, you'll have time to put your affairs in order. You'll have time to have goodbye parties. You'll have time to ship your stuff out. You'll have time to do this. And then everything falls in, in five minutes. Now, maybe they were foolish and they should have known better, uh, since, you know, the minute that he said it in July, I figured that the that they were a goner, and I don't know that much about what it's like on the ground. Nonetheless, he can't blame anybody but himself. He said, stay, he said, don't panic, and then the government falls, and then he's saying, well, you didn't panic fast enough. As someone on Twitter put it, the, there's a shocking number of people who forgive him for uh, having 
miscalculated and having no sense of urgency about leaving while not forgiving the American citizens who also didn't have a sense of urgency about leaving. I mean, he said in the speech, the vast majority of the people who are left are people who maybe, you know, uh, of, of Afghan origin and stayed behind for their families or whatever. And that may be true. Um, but I don't know what that means, except to say that uh, if he had said on, if he hadn't done happy talk in July, maybe they would have started to make provision for their families. Well, not to, you know, in further your consternation here, but apparently Joe Biden misspoke during that speech. He said they got 90% out. Um, what of he Americans. was supposed to say of Americans, American citizens, passport holders. Those are the only people they're counting, which, by the way, we'd never hear the end of if the, if this was the Trump administration in deliberately eliding green card holders and SIVs from the tally of a quote unquote Americans they're getting out of here. It would be a, his, a historic racist scandal. But moving on, he said 90 percent. We got 90 percent outright wrong. But the, what the White House meant to say, and they subsequently uh, amended the transcript of that speech to say they got 98% out. Now, Joe Biden also said in that speech that they had evacuated 5,500 American citizens, which means precisely 110 Americans are left in Afghanistan. Where are these numbers coming from? Where do they get these figures? They're saying they have no accurate count of the Americans in Afghanistan because they register, they don't register, whatever. We lose track of them. We're not an authoritarian country. We don't track you when you travel abroad. What have you? Sure. Reasonable. So where are these numbers coming from and why are they being so credulously repeated by members of the press? It's, it, 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 it just, it, it stretches the bounds of credulity in a way that the, the media should be embarrassed to re- re- repeat uh, as they are, and they just don't seem all that interested in doing any fact checking. on that. Well, and the, the other point that was actually I found um, shockingly uh, insulting to the American people was that boasting about this uh, airlift out, you know, oh, it's amazing. We've, you know, no one but America could pull this off. He never mentions the salient fact, which is that, as and you alluded to it earlier, John, it was only because we'd used Taliban for security. So this idea that, you know, 20 years after uh, 20 years in this country, we're now talking. He never mentions the Taliban very much. He talked. Did he even talk about terrorism much? I can't I can't recall exactly. He was too busy being. Oh, defensive. yes, he did. Right. No, no, no. Yeah. The, over the horizon. He talk about ter- terrorism. He said um, that. We succeed. This is right, we, succeeded, we succeeded right, in our mission. In what we set out to do in Afghanistan over a decade right. ago, if you believe that yeah. one. I mean, it's like they're just trying whatever lines they can to try to get them through this news cycle. But yeah, apparently we succeeded at de- you know demolishing terrorism in Afghanistan. The, the two ISIS, two strikes on ISIS operatives that killed 13 Americans the week earlier, notwithstanding. Well, as if success is measured by whether you can kumbaya hold hands with your former enemy uh, while fleeing in in dishonor from a country that you could easily have had a small presence in and, and kept that those terrorists at bay. Okay, let's move on from the uh, from the uh, praise uh, of the uh, airlift that he made necessary. Um, but John, the, yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry, but, but we still haven't captured the tone of that part which okay. was angry. He came out to argue with the American people. Um, everyone said he was defiant. He was defensive. Um, and it has to be said, he has missed the tone every step of the way on this thing. When the, when, when the, the airless first started happening, he came out, I don't know how, it was, you know, almost two weeks ago, he came out and made a speech that was totally heartless, Blaming the Afghans, um, having zero sympathy for the, for the Afghans that would be left behind, uh, and then he went back in, and then the 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 evacuation proceeded. Then there was the horrible attacks on uh, American Marines. Came at that time, and he was sleepy and sad when everyone was angry. Missed the moment again. Goes back in. Now the the evacuation is supposedly over. He comes out and he's yelling at us. He is hectoring us, scolding us for not realizing what a great thing he did. And that was, I thought, I, I, I couldn't believe 
the, the, the gap that he has consistently widened between himself and the American people across the, 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 the length of this thing. Uh, Jake, uh, not Sherman, Jake um, Sullivan, National Security Advisor, uh, jumped on with Jake Tapper right after the speech concluded and I was watching it. And the first question was on what Tapper described as the, quote, defiant tone that was struck during this speech, which I I would digress and say is is, it was good to have some sort of a course correction. He was trying to project resolve, but more in sorrow and mournfully, and it was just discordant. But anyway, so he changed his tone. He went in the entire opposite direction, still missed the mark, way overshot the mark. Right. And, and Sullivan said, well, I would t- he took issue with uh, defiance because the, what the White House wanted to project apparently was passion, was commitment. So Joe Biden's passion is it's like just, the passion of again, Grandpa Simpson like shaking his well, fist. Yesterday, it's bad acting. He's it chewing bad acting. Thing. Okay, so let's go through further through the speech, okay? So Operation Allied Rescue was an extraordinary success, and you suck if you think otherwise. Right. <clears throat> okay. One of the biggest airlifts in history. More than 120,000 people evacuated to safety. This is my one question, just before we go on. That number is more than double what most experts thought were possible. No nation, no nation has ever done anything like it in all of history. Uh, A, yes, other nations have done airlifts. Israel, in 1950, Israel practically airlifted 800,000 people, 800,000 Jews from Yemen, uh, you know, some 80,000. I can't remember what. In 1950, uh, we India, had Dunkirk. India got people out of Kuwait after in 1991 to the yeah. tune of, I think, close to 100,000. Yeah, I mean. But with the cooperation of the government. So, I mean. It well, we had the cooperation of the government, too, apparently. Right? Yeah, right. Yeah, okay. Fair enough. So anyway, so A, it's not true. That's fine. So so he d- took a nice Trumpian, did a nice Trumpian. This is the most amazing thing in history. As I say, you land a plane, the plane flies off. If it's not under anti-aircraft fire, it's not that impressive. I'm sorry. But okay, the extraordinary success of this mission, due to the incredible skill, bravery, and selfless courage of the United States military and our diplomats, intelligent professionals, and indeed, they deserve all the praise possible for whatever it was that they had to do logistically. They risked their lives. They were up, you know, 24 hours a day. And th- and we, we all do uh, owe them a debt of gratitude and we thank them. But, okay, so uh, the story, according to him, is this, that um, leaving August 31st is not due to an arbitrary deadline. It was designed to save American lives. My predecessor signed an agreement with the Taliban to remove U.S. troops by May 1st, just months after I was inaugurated. It included no requirement that Taliban work out a cooperative governing arrangement with the Afghan government, but it did authorize the release of 5,000 prisoners last year, including some of the Taliban's top war commanders. By the time I came to office, the Taliban was in its strongest military position since 2001, controlling or contesting nearly half of the country. That, by the way, is an interesting phrase, controlling or contesting. Because there's a big difference between controlling and contesting. Contesting is like, maybe we're going to attack or maybe we're not. The previous administration's agreement said that if we had stuck to the May 1st deadline that they had signed on to leave by, the Taliban wouldn't attack any American forces. But if we stayed, all bets were off. So we were left with a simple decision, either follow through on the commitment made by the last administration or say we weren't leaving and commit another tens of thousands more troops going back to war. That was the choice, the real choice between leaving or escalating. That's just a lie. I mean, it's not a lie exactly because maybe over the course of time, troops would have to be brought in and out and in and out in different moments if we had not you know, made this decision to withdraw all our forces by date certain. But um, it might have required, as far as we know from the reporting, it might have required a contingency, one of many that we've been dealing with over the last several weeks, that would involve the insertion of a few thousand troops more than our presence was at the time, roughly 2,500. So maybe 5,000, maybe 6,000, which is what we introduced into the country in order to execute this operation. Right. And the whole point is, is, if we have forward bases, if we have secure facilities and all of that, we can send 6,000 guys in and take them out and send them in and take them out. The whole point is, this is like saying that our military, you know, the ta- they, the Taliban wouldn't attack any American forces, but if we stayed, all bets were off. Well, I'm sorry, but 
is he just saying that American forces sit there to be sitting ducks? Is this Beirut 1983 that we're supposed to, that they're supposed to sit there and they could get attacked? The Taliban weren't in the you know weren't in the habit of like going and directly attacking American forces in Afghanistan. For one thing, we weren't engaging with them, and they weren't engaging with us. They were it was the Afghan army and the Afghan military that was fighting this war. We were providing logistical training and air support. Right, that's why uh, Abe detailed this. I put it in a column today in the New York Post. That's why. From 2016 onward, the number of casualties, fatalities in Afghanistan was in the incredibly low single digits. You know, the highest year, I think, which was 2018, was 22. Like, we were not engaged in combat with the Taliban. Well, there, can, can we spend a minute talking about what I what I feel was like a subtext of what he was saying that I, I personally found quite offensive that I think the the mainstream media is going to completely ignore. And that's how he, it, it begins with how you said, it, it, did he, was he portraying the military sitting ducks? There was a whole subtext in his speech, which while self-congratulatory about his leadership as, as president, was also painting a portrait of our military as kind of sad, right? Pathetic. Like, oh, they're going to come home and all, you know, commit suicide. And oh, it's so terrible. They just hate, you know, it, it's terrible that they were even there. It's terrible when they come home. It's all just terrible. They're terrible. And I know he thought he was being sympathetic towards the needs of those who have served and 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 come back with some sort of post-traumatic stress and have to deal with it. But it came across as if he was painting with a very broad brush, people who give their lives for their country willingly. We have a volunteer army who go to serve, who come back, who are proud and should be proud of their service. And I just felt there was a real disconnect, as Abe said about his tone in general, between what he thought he was doing when talking about military service and what he actually said. Yeah, what he said was that this is, you know, suicides among veterans are extremely high, suggesting that, you know, the the conditions that we put them in, that they put themselves in, as you say, they volunteer and know that they're going to be in the shit, so to speak. Uh, And that that's, you know, it's psychologically traumatic. It's basically abusive what we as a country do to our military, uh, our men and women in uniform. And so to, to ask them to do their jobs that they sign up for is irresponsible of a, of a, of a leader, um, which has profound implications well beyond Afghanistan. The United States military does offensive operations very well. What we don't do very well are crowd control operations in an indefensible position in an airport around the city that's surrounded by terrorists um, where you're, you're trying to deal with a sea of humanity and a suicide bomber creeps up on you. That's what we don't do really well. Okay, I want to I want to go uh, d- more deeply uh, into this part of the speech about the veterans, but first let me talk to you about a new advertiser uh, today, uh, Vitraza. Um, excited to have them with us. Um, <clears throat> what's underneath your office chair? Chances are you've got one of those cheap plastic chair mats that's dented and cracked. Maybe it's even turning a weird yellow brown color. Let me tell you about a premium alternative I just discovered and absolutely love. It's a glass chair mat by Vitraza. Vitraza glass chair mats are made of super strong glass protected with a nanotech coating. This mat is legitimately beautiful and has will take the look of your office to a whole new level. It smoothly and silently provides a gliding surface for your chair Comfort, style, durability of Vitraza glass chair mat will completely transform your workspace. And Vitraza's glass chair mats come with a lifetime warranty, so it's the last chair mat you will ever need. Take my advice and order online at vitraza.com slash commentary. That's V-I-T-R-A-Z-Z-A dot com slash commentary. They offer 18 popular glass chair mat sizes, and shipping is free. And here's a special deal for our listeners Get 10% off any glass chair mat with promo code COMMENTARY at vitraza.com slash commentary. Again, save 10% by using promo code COMMENTARY at V-I-T-R-A-Z-Z-A dot com slash commentary. So let us go to the text of the speech where he talks about veterans, okay? We've been a nation too long at war. If you're 20 years old today, you have never known an America at peace. So when I hear that we could have, should have continued the so-called low-grade effort in Afghanistan at low risk to our service members at low cost, I don't think enough people understand how much we have asked of the 1% of this country who put that uniform on, willing to put their lives on line in defense of our nation. 
a lot of our veterans and their families have gone through hell, deployment after deployment, months and years away from their families, missed birthdays, anniversaries, empty chairs at holidays, financial struggles, divorces, loss of limbs, traumatic brain injury, post-traumatic stress. We see it in the struggles many have when they come home. We see it in the strain of their families and caregivers. We see it in the strain of their families when they're not there. We see it in the grief borne by their survivors, the cost of war they will carry with them their whole lives. Most tragically, We see it in the shocking and stunning statistic that should give pause to anyone who thinks war can ever be low-grade, low-risk, or low-cost. 18 veterans, on average, who die by suicide every single day in America, not in a far-off place, but right here in America. Um, I'm sorry, this is a disgraceful way to talk about the people who have spent the last generation fighting for this country, portraying them as wounded, tormented, uh, troubled, uh, scarred, uh, broke, uh, bad, you know, uh, having, having damaged their own families because of their service, having missed all of the important life cycle events that they, that they have missed, and so psychically scarred that they take their own lives. I do see very little difference between this kind of cultural portrait of the American military after 9-11 and the way our popular culture in the 1970s used a really disgusting and disgraceful cultural portrait of the damaged Vietnam vet, you know, the crazy Vietnam vet who came home and then, you know, goes on on a killer rampage. Television shows, cop shows, Movies like Rolling Thunder, all of this, the deranged Vietnam War vet was a, was a cultural staple uh, at a particularly loathsome moment in American pop culture history. And to hear the president of the United States pathologizing and somatizing our military, I mean, how many people have been in our military since 9-11? How many people, it's not, by the way, that they just, they, they volunteer, right? It's a volunteer army. They volunteer, they, they re-enlist, they, they sign up again, they do multiple tours. They're not doing multiple tours because we are forcing them to. They're not doing multiple tours because we are, you know, they have no other options. That's, a, that's preposterous and insane. And to, and to talk about their sacrifice and service this way, to characterize it in such a negative fashion, while attempting to sound as though you are wonderfully caring and compassionate is i i just think it's repugnant now can i can i just add to that 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 i think he thought when he was saying all that that he was speaking to what we know i mean if you know anyone who has served they this last few weeks has been really tough especially if they served in afghanistan and know and have friends locally there who they relied on the translators all the people who who helped us while we were there there it's been absolutely uh it, it has raised these traumas again for them because but not because they aren't resilient people who are doing a job that they feel is, a, is an act of service that they want to do for their country. It's because of the debacle that was created by right. the Biden administration's choices. So they're sitting there looking at these people going, you're abandoning these people. This is like we fought for them. We, we've made promises to them that we can't keep because you're tying our hands. So when he says that, it's almost worse because the, the veterans who've served there want their service to have meant something, and it did. And now the Biden administration is trying to rewrite their story in real time after making hugely stupid policy choices. Sorry, I'm getting really wound up because it really angers me when I hear that tone and that that kind of rhetoric coming from our president. I mean, and you you heard this, like uh, the the kind of the apologists, uh, David Rothkopf and uh, Jim Fallows and others talking about how soberly serious finally a president is taking note of the tra- of the tragic you know consequences of, of 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 war on our on our people and all of that I, I, you know so once again what he is doing is he is deploying the fact of uh the kinds of sacrifices uh in, in the most extreme fashion uh that 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 have been you know that have been suffered by our uh, you know, noble defenders um, as a as a as a as a tool and a shield from the consequences of his own decision here. The line that's being trotted out by people like Rothkoff and Senator Brian Schatz is that it took guts. You know, Joe Biden had the guts to finally ignore 
everybody around him and do what no president since 9-11 has done, which is deliberately lose a war. Yeah, took a lot of guts for this president to uh, to abandon the war on terror. Well, we it did. Be, we, should, by the way, we should be so lucky that we have presidents without that much guts. By the way, it did take guts in this sense. that I don't think he meant to... This, he thought it wasn't going to be like this, since we know that's what he said on on July 8th, right? He didn't think it was going to be like this. So I don't know how he gets to take get the, you know, he had the guts to do it, right? I mean, he only had the guts to do it if he would, if, if they said, look, it's going to be really ugly getting out of here. So here's the choice. It's going to be ugly getting out of here. It's going to be ugly to stay. If you think on balance that it's uglier to stay than to get out, then you get out and you, you're going to have to, you're going to have to deal with the consequences of people saying, bad things about you. And in the long run, you will be proved right. That's what takes guts. If he believed on July 8th that this was going to be a cakewalk and that the government, would, we, we could get out and there would be some kind of a decent interval before the Taliban took over the country, then there would be no such spectacle like the spectacle that we saw this month. Then it took no guts at all. It just means that he's a fool. Well, and that's to, to Abe's earlier point about uh, his tone. And, and he. this is why his constant refrain of, I take full responsibility, comes off as flippant and hollow when he says it. He actually, What's he taking responsibility for? Because I haven't heard him taking much responsibility. He says the words, but his actions and the rest of his words don't back up that statement. And I, I, on this point about guts, look, I, no one knows what's in someone else's mind, but uh, if I had to bet my life one way or the other, if someone had shown him a vision of the last two weeks beforehand, we never would have withdrawn. Right. Well, I mean, that's, you know, in the end, that's what the buck stops with the president means. I mean, one way or another, the whole thing about saying the buck stops with me um, is not anything uh, about which he needs pride or not, you know, or like, or, you know, is showing real. I mean, it's just the fact of it. Ultimately, there's a decision that was made, was made at the presidential level. And if it was the right or wise decision, he will benefit from it. He will benefit from it politically. He will benefit from it in the eyes of the American people. And history will record that he did something right when other people were short-sighted or foolish. And if he makes the decision and things go wrong, there's nowhere to hide. And what this speech showed was a desperate desire to hide. I mean, this whole section about how it's all Trump's fault was very interesting. If this was the right decision, why isn't he praising Trump's negotiation? He said, don't blame me. Look at Trump. He did this negotiation. He didn't say the Taliban had to have a reconciliation with the Afghan government. He let them release 5,000 prisoners. And he said we'd be out by May 1st, which gave us no time because then our troops would be sitting duck. So don't blame me. But according to him, Trump made the right call. So what is he attacking Trump for? According to him, he's he was just he just needed a couple extra months after Trump to kind of like get all the ducks in a row. Trump maybe was a little, you know, was a little uh, precipitous, but uh, his heart was certainly in the right place, according to Biden. Trump wanted to get out. Biden wanted to get out. What's he what's he like saying? Don't look at me. Look at that guy. Because he was not talking to us. He was not talking to sort of like he was talking to the MSNBC audience or something. It's like as long as you can say Trump did it, then they're like, oh, Trump did it. OK, well, but that's I mean, exactly it. OK, <clears throat> the audience for this speech wasn't us, wasn't persuadable voters in the middle. It was the many Democrats, according to Pew polling, less than half of Democrats who support this operation. Now, they wanted to get out. They want they like Biden. They want to support this White House, but they can't support this. And Joe Biden was just throwing everything he could at the wall to give them as much rhetorical ammunition as possible to argue with their family members that this is really not the debacle that your eyes suggest it is. But their argument is a paradox. I mean, uh, as I, I tweeted, they can't decide whether or not this is a Trump-engineered debacle or a Biden-led triumph. It can't be both. Right. 
because it can't be a triumph and a debacle. Well, not, I mean, not if you're trying to be logical and consistent here, but that's not what any of this is about. It's They're greasing themselves up and squeezing out, out of whatever bad news cycle they can get out, yeah, even at the expense of the next news cycle, even if it means disparaging our, our soldiers, even if it means blaming the Americans we left behind, even if it means contradicting yourself in the same sentence. It doesn't matter. It's just about getting out of a rough spot. I mean, he doesn't think that he's disparaging our soldiers, which is also part of a larger question about what we're talking about in terms of the projection purposes and moral frame of American power. I think the idea here is that uh, in projecting American power, the soldiers and our military are not elevated by their service and sacrifice to larger principles, not just love of country and protection of the homeland and all that, but liberty, freedom, uh, you know, uh, opposition to totalitarianism, to Islamist tyranny, to, you know, radical Islam and all of that. Instead, it's all about what, how they've been hurt, what what's hurt them. And so he's a person of compassion because he's like, look how injured you are. Look how, look, look how shattered you are. Look how shattered your families are. Look how shattered everything is. And this is how you want to talk to people who have spent, the last two decades of their life in service to their country to talk about how their country broke them and ruined them and shattered them. Um, that, that does a, it's condescending. It's incredibly condescending, vile, like nauseatingly condescending. They know who they are. They know what they're doing. They're, they're, they're adults and they're, and a lot of them are in their thirties and forties and are lifetime members of the military from families who are lifelong military families, they don't need to be told that everything that they did was, aside from the horror of a president saying most of what you did was valueless, certainly for the last 10 years. Because, look, we got it all done 10 years ago. So whatever the hell you've been doing there, what the hell were you even doing there? What were you doing there? Like, that's one of the dishonorable parts about this, which is, even if he believes that there was no purpose and he is the commander in chief of the U S military. And there are hundreds of thousands of people under his you know, direction. Maybe he doesn't want to crap all over what they've been doing but, for the last 10 years. Even if he thinks that what they've been doing fundamentally did not advance the, you know, advance American interests. But that the, the, the condescension uh, about the military was actually that the, there was a broader condescending tone that, that kept creeping into his speech. Uh, he, I, there were all these phrases like, well, you might not realize when he's talking to the American people that we had to get out or, you know, there would be firefights in the streets of Kabul. You might not know this idea, again, the kind of elitist sense of I know what's best. And he said, I think I did what was best. That's fine. But the tone of some of his defensive uh, remarks about his policy definitely had this extremely condescending sort of, you don't really understand the way that we do. And the problem with that is that that might be true. I'm sure there's a lot of stuff going on that intelligence gatherers have told him about the situation that the average American doesn't need to know and, and won't know. But he didn't communicate any of that with the American people throughout this entire course of events. So we can't trust him because he's been saying one thing and doing another. And as you said, promising it's going to be fine at the beginning of July and then shrugging and blaming Trump when everything collapses. So it's just that the messaging actually matters. And he cannot come out now this late in the game and say, you don't really understand. You just have to trust us. We don't. Well, he can. And I think ultimately this is, again, getting to the philosophical basis of the buck stops here, right? Obviously, Harry Truman, the least philosophical of presidents, when he said it, he wasn't being philosophical. What it means is what will be is what will be. He made this choice. He did not reverse course. He committed uh, after the fall. He committed to sort of like doing whatever he could to bug out as many people as possible. There are some people left there. There is there are some Americans left there. There's way many more Afghans left there at, at, at threat from the Taliban. And what'll be is what'll be. He can say whatever he wants and whatever crap that he wants to come out of his mouth is going to come out of his mouth. And he is now subject to the exigencies of conditions over which he surrendered control. He is now his presidency, his moral standing, and his place in the history books is now entirely in the hands of the Taliban. 
entirely in the hands of the Taliban. And that is what he has done. And that's where the buck, the buck stopped when he said, I'm getting out of here. And the Taliban took over and he didn't say, maybe I shouldn't get out of here so quickly. Or so, uh, so that's it. Like, this is like, um, you know, it's, it's as though, you know, Hurricane Ida is going to be the judge of his president. This is nothing that he can. Can I, um, one, one remark that I made on Twitter that I've been getting a lot of crap for from, you know, the, the Biden supporters or they found something that they can latch onto is over the course of the speech, while he was, uh, attempting to justify his content contention that this was a wasted operation, wasted mission, as you said, for a decade or more, um, was he tried to scandalize us over the cost of the operation. He said, he said, he dropped, you know, he said $300 million per day, this operation costs. And he, and he feigned great offense over the, you know, wasted uh, taxpayer dollars that were just, you know, flushed down the, the drain in Afghanistan, $300 million. He said, At, who is a president who is currently pushing a $3.5 trillion revision to the entire American social contract? in one fell swoop. Um, and the notion here that he has any sort of regard for wasted uh, taxpayer dollars here is, is shocking. And it was, and you know, people were like, well, these are competing value propositions. There, there's obviously there's, you know, we can argue over the, over the, the necessity of one, uh, one expenditure over another, um, trying to be very sophisticated about it as though he wasn't being emotionally manipulative in that moment. Okay, I think we also have to get to the point that the, the speech actually featured the Biden doctrine and we're going to we'll get to that uh, as soon as I tell you guys about Superbeats heart shoes, okay? It's hard to make sure you're getting all the nutrients you need throughout your day if you keep a busy schedule with those work obligations, your family, your friends, your hobbies, all these things can get in the way of essential self-care that makes you the best parent's best friend and employee you can be. That's why Superbeats heart shoes should be an essential part of your daily routine. They combine non-GMO beets with a special ingredient, grapeseed extract, that is unique to Super Beets Heart Chews. Grapeseed extract has been the focus of scientific research for years due to its high concentration of antioxidants, which supports cardiovascular health and overall wellness. The grapeseed extract used in Super Beets Heart Chews has been clinically shown to be two times as effective at supporting normal blood pressure as a healthy lifestyle alone. Healthy blood flow means more energy the way nature intended without the jittery caffeine or stimulants. And just two delicious chews a day gives the blood pressure support you need and the energy you want. So do this for me today. Support your heart health today with delicious Super Beats Heart Chews. Get your Super Beat Heart Chews today at superbeats.com slash commentary. And when you buy two bags, they'll throw in the third for free. That's superbeats, S-U-P-E-R-B-E-E-T-S dot com slash commentary. Um, so Biden basically said, uh, we're done uh, trying to remake the world or remake other countries, maybe not to remake the world. We're done. Yeah, right. How many times in the history of this country from the very outset has a president said, we're done trying to remake the world? Uh, you know, uh, maybe a little modesty in 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 announcing. Now, we we've already been through a presidency in which a president said that he w- wasn't interested in trying to remake the world, uh, and now we have a second. That's interesting. A kind of like a continuity here between Trump and Biden, just like the policy of pulling out of Afghanistan. Um, but. Uh, But at the same time, he says, we'll continue to speak out for the basic rights of the Afghan people, especially women and girls, as we speak out for women and girls around the globe. So uh, we're we're going to talk. We're going to we're going to do a lot of nice talking, but uh, we're not going to put any uh, force behind uh, our our words or something like that. Uh, Abe, where do you think this goes? Well, but first, I just want to say we've had four presidents, I think, the past four presidents who came into office right. n- not interested in remaking the world, including George W. Bush. He didn't right. he didn't set out to remake the world. That wasn't. And, and, and then we got attacked. Maybe five, maybe five, because I don't think Bill yeah. Clinton set out to remake the Abs- world. Absolutely. Either. Right. Right. There you go. So 
So um, this is, you know, what, 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 then when we then, which brings us to where this goes from here. Um, look, I've, I don't want to be too negative and um, hysterical, but um, we end up doing things that look like we're trying to remake the world <clears throat> in response to threats, in response to getting attacked. Um, and as I've said before, when jihad is ascendant, the world gets palpably more dangerous and we have to do things and, and we, we do them with the support of the American people on these horrible occasions when things, when, when things do happen to us. Um, we have to do things that bring us back out into the world engaged in uh, and committed in a very serious way. So in a vacuum, sure, it would be great if we didn't if we didn't have to do anything, uh, you know, difficult in in failed states ever again. Well, it, it, history simply does not work that, that way and it won't work that way in the future. Well, it's like the 90s are back again. Right. I mean, that's the other thing that was missing from the speech is beyond a kind of, you know, nod to our over this, the, the now, you know, parodic uh, over the horizon capabilities, he didn't reassure the American people that Afghanistan becoming a hotbed for terrorist networks is is something we shouldn't worry about and what our plan is for that. And I think, so our friend Eli Lake at Bloomberg News has an excellent column on this today where he talks about, you know, oh, cruise missile diplomacy. That worked really well at the lead up to 9-11. I mean, we got to a point where we needed to intervene in part and react, as, as you say, Abe, because we thought that this idea of, you know, targeted bombings here and there were enough to keep the homeland safe, to say nothing of kind of aggressive threats around the rest of the world. So he really didn't offer much reassurance because he is in a kind of bind. He either has to say the Taliban is going to continue to be our nice partners or he's got to acknowledge that what the Taliban is already doing, going house to house, killing its enemies, keeping women locked down and in burqas and not allowed to be educated anymore. I mean, he has to acknowledge who they are. He can't do that to maintain this narrative. It was apparent from the start of this thing that the Biden administration's political bet, domestic political bet, is that uh, Americans really want out of Afghanistan. They don't care about how it happens. And that you have something along the lines of this from um, NBC News, Sahil Kapper, who uh, quotes experts, uh, you know, will Afghanistan matter to voters is the question he fundamentally poses. And the experts suggest no, because American voters don't care about foreign policy, which is true. But to describe this as just another foreign policy news cycle is indicative of how they've approached this crisis from the beginning and how they fundamentally misjudged the American people, in my view. They are betting that you don't care that America, America as a global superpower is finished, that you will welcome our decline, that you will endure and absorb defeat and surrender because anything else disrupts your comfort. And we do care but about terrorism. About we do. Americans yeah. do care about terrorism, even if we don't care about the details of foreign policy. And Americans don't care about foreign policy as a general theoretical proposition, are we rail politique or are we interventionist? Are we isolation? Are we? The, they don't care about the terminology and they don't care about the sort of the larger sorts of things that those of us who are interested in this argue about. What are, what's the basis? What's the history? How does it work? What, what examples from history can we take? They don't care about geopolitical they, grand strategy. Yeah. Do they care about the consequences that flow from a failed foreign policy? Of course they do, because the consequences all have to do with questions of safety, questions of whether Americans traveling abroad, not soldiers, not, you know, spies, whether Americans traveling abroad feel safe or unsafe, whether our businesses, whether we function in a world, in an atmosphere in the world in which trade routes and, uh, and and trade practices and all of that are stable and are unmolested. They care if they start feeling threatened by North Korea, which of course is now saber rattling again uh, now that they are now that they uh, Kim Jong-un has lost a lot of weight and and seems now to be getting into fighting trim that they care about the kinds of things that happen when America's strength recedes. It's even simpler than that. Americans don't care about foreign engagements until it begins producing bodies or profound humiliations for the country abroad. This did both. 
Every, right. We have every historic indication that this is the sort of thing that Amer- that snaps Americans out of their complacency when it comes to the world beyond our shores. Uh, well, look, and his whole line about how, well, we have no interest in Afghanistan uh, beyond um, having gotten to bin Laden, right? If, if, if it was... If bin Laden had planned an attack out of Yemen, we never would have gone into Afghanistan. We had no interest in Afghanistan. Um, who in America would have thought that we had an interest in Afghanistan between the Soviets leaving there and our being attacked on 9-11? No one. And they would have all been wrong. We had, right. we had a profound it, interest right. in, in Afghanistan. Charlie Wilson, the Texas congressman who was the advocate, the forceful advocate in the 1980s for American support for the Mujahideen fighting the Soviets in Afghanistan, famously said, as the as the Mujahideen, as the you know, as the Taliban took over, as the country fell to the bad forces, he said, "We did what we could, and we did a lot of good, and then we effed up the end game. Had we had we done something to help in Afghanistan, help." So that the Taliban did not come to power in 1993, Al-Qaeda would not have had a safe haven from which to strike us in 2001. Those are the ancillary consequences. That's exactly what Abe is talking about here. And that's why you can't know what the consequences. It's not just what happens in Kabul. That could be horrific beyond belief enough. Or maybe it won't. It is what 10 or 15 other countries are going to do with the knowledge that they have gleaned over the last couple of weeks and the words of the president of the United States saying, we're done interfering with you. Oh, great. You're done interfering with me. I'm just going to go in and kill this entire minority population in my country uh, that is causing me trouble. I'll just commit a little genocide. See how you like it now. See how you like Rwanda now. Because that's what happens when we say, I'm sorry, we're washing our hands clean. I wish it didn't. I wish I wish this burden was on somebody else, maybe. But it isn't, and there is nobody else. And we did F up the endgame back then. Nowhere near as much as we effed up the endgame this time. We didn't we didn't we didn't put in power um, a uniquely strong Taliban and a uniquely weak U.S. And give them all our weapons. Just leave behind all that equipment. And a uniquely distrustful United States with an announcement that we are are no longer interested in fighting you, you win. Not much more to say. So we'll reconvene tomorrow for Abe, Christina, Noah, I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning.